District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I will dive deep into the Return Act and the problems instead in that bill, and I will also discuss Maryland soon becoming a shall-issue state with the announcement today from Governor Hogan urging law enforcement to remove the good and proper clause requirement, although there are some sticking points. Let's dive deep into these topics right now. I need to address the elephant in the room. I'm alluding to the Return Act which is a bill that has been introduced by Congressman Andrew Clyde of Georgia's 9th Congressional District. He is a Republican, and he and 53 co-sponsors have introduced the Return Our Constitutional Rights Act that also stands for Repealing Excise Tax on Unalienable Rights Now to eliminate the federal excise tax on firearms and ammunition. And this is what the congressman is quoted as saying before I go into what my qualms with the bill is. In case my Democrat colleagues forget, the Bill of Rights enumerates rights to which the government cannot infringe. Unquestionably, infringement exists when the government taxes those rights to limit the people's ability to exercise them, said Clyde. As assaults against sec- American Second Amendment freedoms continue to emerge, so do treacherous threats that seek to weaponize taxation in order to price this constitutional right out of the reach of average Americans. I firmly believe that no American should be taxed on their enumerated rights, which is why I intend to stop the left's tyranny in its tracks by eliminating the federal excise tax on firearms and emissions. Before I explain why this is foolish, the likelihood of this passing, the Return Act passing, is very slim. I want to preface my discussion of this, but let's talk about the symbolic nature of why this is problematic. Now, Congressman Clyde is saying this is in response to my congressman's bill, the Assault Weapons Excise Act of 2022, which would impose a thousand percent tax on semi-automatic AR-15 rifles. Don Beyer is a anti-gun zealot, but you don't need to one-up him by passing a similar bill, which would go in the opposite extreme direction. Let's first also talk about what the Pittman-Robertson Act is with the question of excise taxes. So actually, it was just the anniversary of the Pittman-Robertson Act passed into law. It's a seminal law passed in 1937 when sportsmen and women recognized at the turn of the 20th century that market game hunting and conservation funding were not guaranteed. There was no mechanism to perpetuate wildlife, to keep different species around. So sportsmen and women, namely hunters and anglers, specifically hunters and shooting sports enthusiasts, because there's the Dingle Johnson Amendment for the fishing and boating side. What does the Pittman-Robertson Act do specifically? I'm going to read for you guys what exactly happens with Pittman-Robertson. We've talked about this at length here but I'm going to rehash it because I think what is lost on these Republican members is their failure to understand PR funds. And Congressman Clyde even goes in his press release saying that what he wants to do instead of Pittman-Robertson Act is to basically gut it. And he wants to redirect unallocated lease revenue generated by onshore and offshore energy development on federal lands, which currently flows into the general fund to continue funding these important programs. We're going to talk about the 
money's generated, but if you want it to be like LWCF or something of that nature, you won't have anywhere near the same level of funding that you see currently with Pittman-Robertson funds. It is also a law that allows for us to see continued funding at the state wildlife agency level of wildlife conservation projects, habitat restoration efforts, and also hunters' education. What is the excise tax instituted? What's the percentage? It currently is an 11% excise tax on the wholesale price of long guns and ammunition and 10% on the wholesale price of handguns and revolvers. And this is from the NSSF. The excise tax applies basically to all commercial sales and imports, whether their purpose is for shooting, hunting, or personal defense, and is paid by manufacturers, producers, and importers. No mention of consumers paying this tax. That's something that Congressman Clyde conveniently leaves out of his press release and his bill. What happens is anytime you buy a license, anytime you buy handguns, revolvers, firearms, ammunition, those monies from the excess taxes that are paid by manufacturers and importers and producers, that then goes to be collected by the Department of Treasury, then to be sent to Department of Interior, which oversees all state wildlife agencies through the Fish and Wildlife Service. Then they disperse monies allocated by state to them, and each state will get a different amount depending upon how many users there are, to my understanding. So states that have more sportsmen and women will get more money versus those that don't. That's usually how it is. And these monies, believe it or not, in this year alone, generated $1.5 billion. And since the law's inception, it's generated about $15 billion since 1937. And this year alone was historic. What is the percentage of conservation funding that emanates from excise taxes collected on firearms and ammunition? You guys want to know the statistics? According to the North Carolina State University College of Natural Resources, approximately 60 to 80 percent of excise taxes from firearms, ammunition, and angling equipment provides funding for state wildlife agencies. There is a great study on this. I will link to it in the show notes. So why are we seeing this effort? We, we're seeing attacks from, if we want to put it into political terms, we're seeing attacks from those on the far left with the negotiation between the Center for Biological Diversity and the Fish and Wildlife Service, which apparently both entered into final settlements to repeal the opening of 2.2 million acres to new fish, fishing and hunting opportunities that were opened in the summer of 2020 under the Trump administration. And they are starting to get concessions with banning lead tackle and bullets on Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuge lands. We have attacks from the anti-hunters who are on the left. And now we're seeing this from Republicans who have a failure to understand how conservation works in this country. This is a very popular idea and policy. Sportsmen and women wanted to have these excise taxes placed on them so that they could have a funding mechanism for conservation. As I alluded to, this is not felt on the consumer. Whenever you buy a gun, you're not seeing a section on the tax portion saying, okay, this is going to Pittman-Robertson fund. You as a consumer are not feeling this. How exactly is an infringement on our Second Amendment rights if we, the consumer, are not paying this tax, if it's the importers and manufacturers and producers who are paying this tax? So you're seeing no measurable impact on your ability to exercise and keep and bear arms through paying Pittman-Robertson. So that's a point that needs to be honed in. A great piece from Outdoor Life highlighted this too. I'm going to read for you this from Natalie Krebs. She writes that 
Pittman-Robertson taxes are applied to manufacturers who then bake them into the cost of their goods. In other words, although consumers aren't technically paying the tax, they are ultimately footing the bill. So even if the tax was eliminated, consumers wouldn't necessarily see a price reduction at the register since the cost of firearms and ammunition are dependent on a wide variety of factors, including availability and price of materials. So I want to urge my fellow conservatives, especially these members of Congress who are listed as co-sponsors, although I've heard from different people that some of the original co-sponsors have since rescinded their support of the bill. I don't think it's reflected yet in the congressional record, but more and more are being educated by conservationists about why this is a very, very impractical effort, that it'll have huge ramifications on conservation. It also isn't politically conservative. It's not in line with stewardship to want to gut Pittman-Robertson funds. And I want to pose this question before we move on to our next topic to Congressman Clyde. Would you rather, if you want to shift this over to a model like Land and Water Conservation Fund, you're not going to see, let's say this administration, allow for more offshore and onshore gas and oil exploration. Do you see the latest news? Why do you think moving it over to, let's say, Mirror Land and Water Conservation Fund is going to generate the same level of monies that go back to wildlife agencies when you have a hostile administration that refuses to develop onshore and offshore oil and gas projects? It makes no sense. You're not going to see it for the next few years. And two, the monies will never, ever be measurable to that of the current system in place. If you're looking for a written explanation on this, I will delve more deeply into this for my Friday town hall column and urge Republicans, especially fellow conservatives, to abandon support for this because this is not going to look good. You're not going to build rapport with sportsmen and women if you do this. They're looking for guidance. Don't shoot yourselves in the foot, pun intended, by embarking on this lost cause that is not going to go anywhere in Congress and you're going to give and fuel your opponents on the left who are radical preservationists to take ownership of conservation funding if you move it away from excess taxes generated on firearms and ammunition. So think long and hard on this. If you want to get proactive, get involved with different organizations to urge your members of Congress to rescind support for this or to not support this in general. So you have to make your voices heard. I can't really wave a magic wand and overturn this myself. It's lies in you guys. It lies in all of you listening, all of you who are involved to write your member of Congress and urge them to not support this. Explain why Pittman-Robertson matters, the importance of the law, why it's one of the few good laws that the government actually stewards. If we want to talk about government effectiveness, this is the rare instance, if you want to give them a concession, where they actually do things well. They don't do things properly. They could do a lot more to enhance Pittman-Robertson, actually, instead of gutting it. But I think this is one of the few efforts that can bring together people, whether you're on the right or the left. And please, conservatives, don't proceed with this. You don't need to own the libs here. You got to be better than the libs if we're going to put it into those kind of terms. The Second Amendment and hunting are two different subjects. And that definitely needs to be honed in. But this is not a surefire way to combat gun control by gutting Pittman-Robertson. Those are two different issues. Do not apply the same thing here. As I've said, this has no measurable impact on your ability to keep and bear arms whatsoever. And it's going to be a divisive tool. You're going to divide the sportsman community. You're going to divide firearms owners. It's not productive. You're going to look very, very disingenuous if you're claiming to be a sportsman and supporting gutting of Pittman-Robertson. So that's all I have to say on this matter. Speaking of firearms, 
a little bit of good news for our friends across the river in Maryland. Governor Larry Hogan, who is completing the tail end of his second term, announced in a Twitter post, and I think there's also an accompanying press release, that he wants to direct law enforcement to comply with the Supreme Court ruling that overturned the constitutionality of may-issue concealed carry laws. And he is quoted as saying, I'm reading from his Twitter, in light of the recent Supreme Court ruling and to ensure compliance with the Constitution, I am directing the Maryland State Police to suspend utilization of the good and substantial reason standard when reviewing applications for wear and carry permits. My full statement and dated July 5th, 2022. Here is what the full statement reads. Over the course of my administration, I have consistently supported the right of law-abiding citizens to own and carry firearms while enacting responsible and common-sense measures to keep guns out of the hands of criminals and the mentally ill. Last month, the Supreme Court struck down a provision in New York law pertaining to handgun permitting that is virtually indistinguishable from Maryland law. In light of the ruling and to ensure compliance with the Constitution, I am directing the Maryland State Police to immediately suspend utilization of the good and substantial reason standard when reviewing applications for wear and carry permits. It would be unconstitutional to continue enforcing this provision in state law. There is no impact on other permitting requirements and protocols. Today's action is in line with actions taken in other states in response to this recent ruling. And I believe Massachusetts, New Jersey, and a couple of the other remaining May issue states have also said they will be in compliance. But that second to last sentence I read for you guys, there is no impact on other permitting requirements and protocols. I wonder would the localities, let's say Montgomery County and Prince George's County, would they still create barriers to concealed carry applicants? I am encouraged with most of the remaining May issue states with falling in line with the Supreme Court decision. New York is still creating obstacles. And even in this statement from Governor Hogan, I'm not sure I really like seeing this remaining protocols and requirements in Virginia and West Virginia have very easy permitting schemes, permitting regimes more so. It's very easy to get your concealed carry permit. I believe West Virginia is a constitutional carry state, so you don't need a permit. But even in constitutional carry states, I still think it's wise to have it so you can carry in certain places, have both. You don't lose out from having both your permit and also taking advantage of constitutional carry. We don't have constitutional carry here in Virginia but I am encouraged to see this. I know Marylanders have been very envious of us in Virginia and those in West Virginia and even DC. DC has a better, slightly better permitting system than Maryland does. If DC had it before Maryland, you know, something was wrong in that picture. So I think we're going to see a lot of people get concealed carry permits. They can't deny you for getting it. I hope they don't create further obstacles. And we will interview some Maryland permit holders or would be permit holder applicants. Very soon, I've connected with some interesting people recently, and I really want to hear their take. I really want to know how the process is going to be. Is it convoluted? Is it going to be difficult? So if you are someone living in one of these states that will soon be shall issue, especially in Maryland, let's talk. I would love to share your story and get it out there here through the podcast or even through townhall.com. So great update. Hope there won't be any obstacles created for would-be applicants. And I have no doubt different gun rights organization will sue to ensure that any remaining obstacle for getting a permit is challenged in the court of law. So I wanted to end on that note. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>